Well, we got to part number six of our Defining Moments series. And I'm kind of sad because I've really enjoyed this series. It's been one of my favorite series that we've ever done here at Generation Church. And, uh, but we've got to, got to the end of it today. And throughout this series, we've seen just a number of different people. We've seen people like Jacob and Esther and Job and Daniel and Peter. And they all went through different parts in their lives where they came to one moment that was a defining moment for them. And I hope it has encouraged you that no matter where you are in your life, that God can make even the most miserable circumstances a defining moment in your life. God can make times of joy, times of sadness, times of when you feel God is blessing you, times when you feel God isn't blessing you. They can be defining moments in your life. And today we're going to talk about a man who many of you know. But before we talk about that man, I want to share something with you that I love to do whenever I go home to England. I don't get to go home to England very often, but when I do, I go to my parents' house. And one of the first things I do is I go through my uh, parents' old photographs. I bring them all out, get them. They're either in the attic or they're in some cabinet they haven't opened forever. So, like, I blow off all the dust. And I start looking through all these old photographs. And I love looking through old photographs because it just shows you just times in the past. It reminds you uh, of different moments in your life. Yeah, I like look at like when my parents were younger and they were skinny and I'm like, how? Oh, what happened? You know, and then I look at myself when I was skinny. I'm like, oh, man, what happened? And, uh, and, and then, you know, we look through these things and I, I look through like the outrageous clothes I used to put on. And I'm like, what was I thinking? What was I wearing? The crazy hairstyles I used to wear. So you think I got a crazy hairstyle now. Wait till you see some of my old photographs. I mean, they're like, I had girly hairstyles. I had very manly hairstyles. I had like skinheads and none of them suited at all, but they were crazy hairstyles. But when I look through the photos, you can tell there's the different ones that were taken in just a candid moment, the ones where you're just like miserable because someone's taken a photo of you, and you can also tell the photos that were very proud moments. If you were to look through our old photographs and you would see uh, October 2000, was the day that I walked the line and graduated from college. I wore this cap and this gown, and you look at the pictures, and you can see my mom's face. My mom has got this beaming smile. She is so proud of her son. And then you look at me, and I look miserable because I hated that cap and gown. I wanted to get out of it as soon as possible. I was uncomfortable. That was a proud moment for my mom, and it jumps from the photo paper. You you look at the photos when I got married, and you see me, and I've got my chest puffed out. I'm all happy and excited because I'm marrying my my sweetheart, and I just can't wait, and it's wonderful, and I'm proud. And you can see from the photo, it's like this proud moment just jumps off the page. And then you fast forward a week, and I'm on my honeymoon, and you see a picture of Raquel and myself horseback riding, and you can see that I'm in the most uncomfortable pain of my life, and I can't walk for a week after it. And I'm like, seriously, like this, you know? I'm like, never again. And you can tell that from a photograph. You can tell those proud moments, those moments that often we think define our lives. And what are your proud moments? When you look through your old photographs or you look through your your Facebook stream or you go on your Instagram account and you look through all those photos, what are the proud moments for you? Maybe they're the birth of a child. 
Maybe they are the moment you graduated. Maybe they are the moment you got married or or the moment you got your first car and it was a banged up job and, you know, it's like the, the door was falling off, but you were so proud because it was your first car and you got yourself a set of wheels. Uh, or maybe it, it was that first job and, you know, you're dressed to the nines and then you get to work and you realize everybody is business casual and you're a little overdressed. So the next day, you you don't go in your suit and tie anymore. That happened to me a couple of times. And so, but we look through photos and we see these proud moments. And so often we think the proud moments are the moments that define our lives. We think the moment we get married or the moment we graduate, the moment we have a baby, those are the moments we think that define our lives. And this man we're going to talk about today, he had one of those moments where if you were to look through his family photos, you would look at this one moment and you would think that would be his proudest moment of his life, probably his defining moment. If you probably asked his family, his family would say that was his defining moment. And this moment is found in 2 Samuel chapter 5, 2 Samuel chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5. They'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. And this is what it says. Then all the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron and told him, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul was our king, you were the one who really led the forces of Israel. And the Lord told you, You will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. You will be Israel's leader. So there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel, and they anointed him king of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in all. He had reigned over Judah from Hebron for seven years and six months. And from Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. So this moment here, we have a man, his name is David. David in this moment is crowned king of his nation. It is his coronation day. And if for a man... The proudest moment of his life should be the day he becomes king of his nation, right? I mean, you would have thought that is the proudest moment. All your countrymen are believing in you, are wanting you and saying, we want you to be king. This is a man who was not made of royal blood. He was not born in the palace. He was a small shepherd boy who rose through the ranks and he eventually became king of his nation. I can imagine the guy is just as proud as can be. And most people will probably look at him thinking, David, that is your defining moment, the day you became king. It defined you for the rest of your life. No longer were you just, yeah, just a shepherd boy. No longer were you just a soldier. No longer were you just an average person. Now you were king of your nation. That should be the moment that defines you. But you know, when I read this story, I find it amazing. If you read the Bible, you see that the Bible has a lot to say about David. In fact, 
only probably Moses and Jesus has more written about them in the Bible than David. There's many, many chapters in the, in the Bible about David before he became king, after he became king. And I find it interesting to think that the day that probably should have been his proudest moment, his defining moment, there's only five verses written about David becoming king. I mean, I'm thinking if I'm writing the Bible, I'm writing like chapters, a couple of chapters about this day, how everybody's rejoicing, everybody's partying in honor of David. I mean, there's, there's dancing and singing in the streets because they have a new king. Yet there's only five verses for this. And this is because while we would think it's his defining moment, it wasn't. His defining moment came years before when he was just a young teenager. And for you church people who know the story of David, it was not the day he killed the giant. It was actually before that day that David had a moment that was better, that was prouder, that was more defining than the day he became king. So I want us to take a look at that this morning. It's found in the first book of Samuel. First book of Samuel, chapter 16. First book of Samuel, chapter 16. We're going to start reading at verse 1. And it says there, Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel says, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint there. So just to set the scene for you, there's this guy called Samuel. Samuel was a prophet of God, meaning God spoke to him so he could tell everybody else what God was saying. Samuel at one point was what we call a judge of Israel. Before they had kings and queens, there was people who ruled over the nation called judges. They, they basically were like leaders of tribes and Saul was one of the ju- I mean Samuel was one of the judges. Well all the people kept coming to Samuel and saying Samuel like respect to you but you're kind of not the leader that we want. We want a king. We want someone that we can look at and, and, and somebody that we can be proud of. We want a king. So the people kept pressing and pressing Samuel and so Samuel went to God, well what do I do? And God says, okay, anoint a king. I'll show you which one to anoint. So they anointed a guy called Saul as king. See, back in those days, we didn't just like give someone a promote. They didn't give someone a promotion. Like they didn't give him like a letter or they didn't give him a corner office. Instead, what they wanted to do, if you wanted to promote someone, you pulled olive oil over their hairs. I'm like, I would not be liking that at all. My hair would be like a mess. It would be like a grease and everything. But that's what they did. So Samuel anointed Saul as king. Saul was like an outstanding guy. He was tall. He was handsome. He was rugged. He was strong. He had experience. He was a good fighter. He was everything that you think a king should be. But the problem was with Saul. Saul's heart wasn't right. 
So one day, Saul was fighting against the armies of the Philistines. They were like the enemies of the Israelites, the Philistines. And so they went to war, and Samuel sent a letter to, uh, or a note to Saul, and he said to him, he said, Saul, don't go and fight the Philistines until I have come. And when I come, we're going to make a sacrifice unto God. We're going to build an altar, put an animal on it, and we're going to make a sacrifice to God because God wants you to do that. And so Saul says, okay. So Saul waits a day. He waits another day. And Saul waits another day. And Saul keeps waiting, and Samuel does not arrive. And Saul is getting a, a little antsy, and he's thinking, I've got this army that want go to go to fight. We've got the Philistines coming against us. We're, we're just going to take things into our own hands. We're going to forget about Samuel. So what Saul did, Saul built his own altar, got an animal, made a sacrifice to God, and then he went out to war and started fighting the Philistines. And guess what happened? They lost they lost. So Saul's like all dejected. You know, he's lost some men. He's lost the battle. And then Samuel comes in. He's like, Saul, what were you doing? I told you to wait for me, but you wouldn't wait. You didn't wait. No wonder you lost. You didn't wait. And so Samuel says this. He says to Saul, he said, Saul, you have been disobedient to God. And because you've been disobedient to God, God's hand upon your life is being removed, and God is rejecting you as king. I'm thinking it's pretty harsh, you know? I'm like, come on. I'm like, how about three strikes and you're out? Not like first strike and that's it. But this is what Samuel said to Saul. He said, Saul, he says, you have rebelled against God. And because you have rebelled against God, that sin in God's eyes is just the same as the sin of witchcraft. God is saying... Saul, because of your rebellion, he said, you might as well have just been going and worshiping the devil. That's basically what, what, what he's saying. You might as well have been doing all these dark things in the spiritual world because that's as bad as I see what you have done. You see, the problem with Saul, even though Saul looked good on the outside, his heart was not right. His heart was not right. So God said to Samuel, okay, go to Bethlehem. There's a guy there who we are going to anoint as king. We are going to choose somebody whose heart is right. And do you know what this shows me? It shows me that when you follow God, there will be times when you have to wait. You have to wait. And when you wait for God, sometimes they can be the most uncomfortable moments of our lives waiting for God. You pray, and it seems like it just hits the ceiling and bounces off. You ask of God, but you don't see anything. You, 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 you pray for your kids, or you pray for your marriage, or you pray for your job, you pray for your, your different situations, and it feels like nothing is happening at all. They can be the most uncomfortable moments in our lives. But the problem is, is when we sometimes feel that we need to act, God is saying, wait, because God's timing is perfect. And when he is waiting, it is for a reason in your life. It is for your better months. And what I've discovered is that God is looking for people who can wait 
just as much as he's looking for people who can make bold steps of faith. And that's the hardest thing in the world. Do you know what? I think sometimes it's easier to make a bold step of faith. It's easier to quit your job and just rely on God. It's easier to go and move to another country where you just know, don't know anybody. You know, I think it's easier to, to get up and decide to make a crazy decision to start a church than it is to wait for God. Because waiting for God is some of the hardest things that you do. But God is looking for people who are able to wait for him just as much as he's looking for people who are able to make bold steps of faith. And so Samuel comes to a place called Bethlehem when there's a guy who lives there called Jesse. This is what it says, verse 4. It says, so Samuel did as the Lord instructed when he arrived at Bethlehem The elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Elab, who was the eldest son, and thought, surely this must be the Lord's anointed. Surely this is the next king. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son, Abinadab, to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel says, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shema, the third son. But Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to, Je- to, but Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Have you ever noticed in your life that we have a very different view to things than that God does? If you go on this Christian journey long enough, there'll be things, you'll be like looking at God thinking, what are you doing? Like, this is the logical choice. Why are you not doing this? So this is what happened. Samuel comes to Jesse. Jesse's got these seven sons. They're all like like perfect guys. I mean, they all like should be, you know, in men's health or something like that. You know, I mean, like the girls on The Bachelor would be all over them. I mean, that's kind of what these guys are. You look at them. I mean, they've got, they haven't got like a six pack. They got like a 12 pack. And it's like, oh, you know, I mean, you look at them and everyone's like, oh, Jesse's sons are, are amazing. And Samuel looks at them and he looks at the first and he thinks, surely this one is God's anointed. You know why? Because he had all the attributes of a king. And when you look at people, we often look at people from the outward attributes that they have. We look at people by their gifts and their talents. We judge people by their experience or their education. We, we, we look at people uh, like how much influence do they have? What is their network like? 
You know, if you were uh, an employer and you were employing uh, somebody to come and work in your team or in your firm, you would want to know what skill set do they have? What can they bring to the team? What experience, what education they have? Well, you would want to know how are they going to fit in with the rest of the team members? Are they better than what we have right now? That's what you want to know because that's the way that we view things. But this is what God said to Samuel. He said, Samuel, he says, you see things on the outward appearance because that's all you can see. But I'm God. I have a bigger view. I have a bigger picture. I see things that you don't see. And you know what? I don't look at the outward. I look at the inward. I look at the heart. God is looking for one attribute. God doesn't care if you're the most gifted or talented person. God does not care if you have experience or education. Shock horror, right? God does not care. Do you know what God cares about? Your heart. God will use people whose heart is right. If your heart is not right, God will not use you. Elab had the perfect resume, but God says, I've rejected him. I have rejected him because his heart is not right. I noticed about the sons here. Jesse's sons. Samuel comes to town, and I find it amazing that all of Jesse's sons, all seven of them, come immediately to Samuel. You see, each of Jesse's sons would have been given a task by Jesse, the father. They, some would have had to look after maybe some cattle. Some would have maybe had to build some barns or some buildings. Some would have been sent to market to buy and sell. Some would have been maybe left to uh, look after the house or look after a family. And that was the work that they were assigned to do by the father. But as soon as the man of God comes, it's like they drop it all and they come to the man of God. And I find sometimes, sometimes... Christians, you're a little like this. You see, our Father in heaven has assigned us to work. Jesus says that our work is to go into all the world and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's our work. But do you know what happens I find so often? The man of God comes. And it's like, who cares about making disciples? I want to go and hear the man of God. Christians, especially, I'm from a Pentecostal background, and for those of you who think, woo, yeah, go woo, for those of you who think, oh, no, don't worry. And we grew up, and we wanted revival. That's all we wanted, revival. Everything was about revival. It was about coming to church on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, because that's all we did, and coming and experiencing God. That's all we wanted to do, experience the presence of God. But you know what happens? We would walk out that door, and we would not do the work of the Father. We wouldn't be telling our friends and family about Jesus. We wouldn't be inviting them to church. Our life was about experiencing God, not about doing the work of the Father. And I think Jesse's sons were just like this. They had work to do, but they dropped the work to come to see the man of God. You know, we see it, you know, like a famous preacher comes to town and, and, and they can pack stadiums because we want to hear from the man of God, but go ask someone to go and tell their co-worker about Jesus Christ and how many want to do it. 
And I believe that God rejected these sons because their hearts were not right. They were not about the Father's work. So this is what happens. 1 Samuel 16, verse 11. Then Samuel asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel says. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome and beautiful. I mean, you don't call a guy beautiful. Come on. With beautiful eyes. Ooh. But it says there, and the Lord said, this is the one anoint him. This is the one anoint him, David, the eighth brother, the forgotten one. The forgotten child. The young, insignificant one. The son who wouldn't amount to much. The brother who was more of a pain in the neck than a brother. The boy who was left out in the cold. Have you ever felt like that? Rejected? Passed aside? When people want things to do, they don't think about you, they think about others. Maybe you've been laughed at. Maybe you've been scorned at. Maybe people have thought you will amount to nothing. Well, this was David. David was the forgotten child. He was the son. Well, it isn't going to be David. David's not going to be the one anointed as king. But the reason God had chosen David was because David's heart was right. David's heart was about the Father and about God. And his actions that day, I think, speak louder than words. Notice what everybody else was trying to go after the big thing. All about Samuel, Samuel, David decided to be faithful to the Father's work. While everybody else was out partying, David decided, I'm going to stay and do the work of the Father. Yeah, I'm just looking after a few sheep and maybe a few goats here and there, but it's important to the Father. And if it's important to the Father, it's important to me. And I believe that it's through this attitude that God saw David's heart. He saw the Father's work more important than the man of God. And I tell you today, God has given you a task, given us as a church a task, and that's to go into this community and make disciples, to go tell people about Jesus, to be a light that shines in the darkness. And I tell you this morning, I love church. I love gathering together. I love worshiping God. I love those Holy Spirit moments. I love them. But they are not more important than telling people about Jesus Christ. Those moments of gathering together and experiencing the Spirit of God about empowering us to go out and be light in the darkness. It's not about us just gathering and having a holy ghost huddle and a wonderful time and running around the building and shake, swinging from the chandeliers. So here was a boy who decided to be faithful in the little things instead of being caught up following the big things. And this is the person that God chooses, the one who has no problem in obscurity, the one who has no problem in just getting on and doing stuff without complaining. 
The one who doesn't want the limelight just wants to do the Father's work. The one who is faithful no matter how small or difficult the task is. You may be flipping burgers and you may have a desire to own your own business. You may be in the center cubicle and you really feel you should be in the corner office. You may be making coffee on a Sunday morning here at church, but you really want to preach. I tell you what, God is doing in those moments while you're flipping the burgers, while you're in the center cubicle, while you are making the coffee, God is molding you and he's shaping you and he's testing your heart to make sure your heart is right for the things of God. It's in these things that sometimes we find insignificant that God is molding you. For if God can trust you in the small, then he knows he can trust you in the large. So let's see what happens. Verse 13. So as Daniel, uh, sorry, as David stood there, Daniel was last week. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil, the dreaded olive oil, and he brought the, and it, uh, he had bought and anointed David with the oil. And then listen to this. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. See the difference between a person who has a right heart and a person who has a wrong heart is the spirit of God. Saul at one point had a good heart and the spirit of God came upon him then his heart changed and the spirit of God left him. David had a right heart and because of his heart the Bible says the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward from that day on see David's heart stayed faithful to God he said in the psalms and this was one of his prayers and I'm sure he prayed it most days creating me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me let there be a right spirit within me see this was the defining day for David Not because Samuel had come and chosen him, but because God had chosen him. Because God from heaven looked down and says, David, even though no one else believes in you, everyone else has forgotten you, David, I believe in you. Your heart is right, and I want to do great things in your life. See, David was able after this moment when the Spirit of God came upon him, he was able then to go back into the fields and a lion and a bear came and he was able to kill a lion and a bear. Then he went to the battlefield and there was this big humongous giant who who was saying all bad things about God and about Israel. And David looked at me in the face. He says, you you shall not defile the, the God of Israel's armies. And he killed a giant even as a boy. He was able to go and become a leader and a commander in Saul's army because the Spirit of God was upon him. He was able to kill the Philistines. He was able, when Saul got all jealous and chased after his life, he was able to stay pure and not sin against Saul and not commit crimes against his king because the Spirit of God was upon him. When David was anointed as king and he was now the, the, the big honcho in, in the nation, he was, not, he was able not to be proud So much that pride got into his heart, all because of the Spirit of God. Until the day that David died, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he stayed faithful to God. For it is in the shadows, the lonely hills of obscurity, 
the years of waiting and waiting and waiting that God is molding you and he is testing you and he is waiting for the day the Spirit of God empowers you. And I ask you today, who wants the Spirit of God? I mean, who wants the Spirit of God? I mean, I want the Spirit of God. I want to experience what David experienced. I want to experience the Spirit of God going with me from this day forward, that I may be able to go out and do things I could never do in my own natural sense. And it all starts with the right heart. It starts in the small, being faithful in the small, and it ends with power greasy olive oil anointing. If you want to climb higher, then you need the Spirit of the living God. And if you want the Spirit of the living God, then you need to stoop down low and be faithful in the small. Some of you, you've been serving over there in the kids for years. And and, and you're feeling, oh man, it's just like, Am I getting any better on this? Am I I getting anywhere? It's like I'm tired of, uh, of dealing with annoying schoolers, or I'm tired uh, of dealing with screaming preschoolers or dirty diapered babies. And, uh, and you're thinking, God, are you even listening? You know what's happening? God is molding you. God is testing you. God is watching you. He, he is preparing you for greater things. You, you, you may feel like, oh man, I hate standing out in the cold while I'm greeting. You know, everyone just bypasses me. It's like nobody like head down. They don't want to shake my hand. You're like, am I doing anything. And you know what God is doing? He is preparing you. He is molding you. He is shaping you. He is testing you for greater things. You may be at your job and you may be thinking, this is just the worst job in the world. I hate it. You know what God is doing? He is preparing you. He is molding you. He is shaping you. And he is testing you for bigger things. And when those bigger things come, if your heart is right, You'll stay with God, and God will reward you more than you could ever imagine. Let's bow our heads in prayer.